you know, John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher, said that happiness should be approached sideways like a crab. You know, it's a byproduct of a life lived well. It's not something you should try to acquire directly. Welcome to Insert Human. This is a show that is not for everyone. It's for seekers, people like you, hopefully, who are searching for solutions to your problems, the world's problems, and everything in between. The conversations to come are going to show you how finding the truth of our humanity is the magic key to solving pretty much anything. Between my monologues, my dialogues with brilliant guests, and your good questions, you're going to learn how to insert human into everything, and in doing so, realize a better life and one day a better world. Eric, welcome. We are thrilled to have you here. For, for the audience, Eric Weiner is, well, you should just Google him. He's an incredible, incredibly pedigreed author of multiple books. He was an NPR correspondent. He wrote for the Times. He is prolific in, in a multitude of ways. But I think most importantly, my sort of biased view is he is a seeker. And that's, you know, what I want to delve into with you today, Eric, is, is your seeking. And, and what, what motivated it early on and what, you, what you've gleaned from it. You know, specifically your first couple of books, The Geography of Bliss, Man Seeks God, and then I think The Geography of Genius, all had this sort of interesting melding of, of, of travels around the world and an exploration of why and how and who humans are. And I just love to sort of hear, we'd love to hear what sent you in that direction and then what you learned from the experience. Ah, well, first of all, I'm delighted to be on the podcast, Chris. And I would say that basically I am a place person. You know, when I when I tackle a subject, you know, whether it's happiness or wisdom or genius, the the first question that comes to my mind is not what, why or how, but where. I want to know where genius is happening, where happiness is happening, whatever it is. And it's just a, a way I've always viewed the world ever since I was five years old and I ran away from my home in, in uh, Towson, Maryland. And I should add, got about two or three miles from home before I was picked up by the police. I've always been a wanderer and I've always had to hang a place on an idea. So really, I hope it doesn't sound pretentious, but I think of myself as a philosophical traveler or a traveling philosopher. Take your pick. So what was your first sort of exploration travel exploration focused on sort of the direct questions of why humans are the way they are, or where, where creativity comes from. Like, was it around the geography of bliss book or was it before that? Was it in college? Like when did you first start? So what happened was I, you know, I graduated from college with a, a useless degree in English literature and this. I was a history major. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Possibly more or less useless. I don't know. We're, it's a close Maybe call. Less. Yeah, yeah. And a real fierce wanderlust. You know, I wanted to see the world, preferably on someone else's dime. And so naturally, I became a journalist and I became a foreign correspondent. And for a decade, that's what I did for, for NPR. I traveled the world exploring some of these themes, but sort of in my spare time. What I mean by that is the job of a foreign correspondent is really kind of a bummer, right? That you really focus on the worst of humanity. You wake up every morning and you think, well, where, where are the least happy people in the world, or at least in my, my beat, the part of the world that I cover? And then you get on a plane or a train and you go to these, this unhappy place, you know, beset with war, famine, disease, whatever it is. 
And then you look for the least happy people in these least happy lands, refugees, sick people, whoever it is, and you tell their story. You listen to them. And then in your spare time, you can do what in journalism we call the feel-good story or the future story. The truth is I was always interested in the stuff I did in my spare time, those stories that opened up a window into a foreign culture. And so one day I woke up, I was in Afghanistan or Iraq, I can't remember, and I thought, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? Someone already predisposed to low-grade depression, uh, traveling around the world and hanging out with the the least happy people in the least happy places. So I had an epiphany. I thought, what if I traveled the world for a year looking for the happiest places? And what could these places teach me and teach us about the art of happiness? And, and that's how the geography of bliss was born, or at least the concept. So, so what did you find out? What I did was I sort of combined my skills as a journalist with, I guess, my heart as a humanist, mm-hmm. you know, to be honest. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't throw away my journalism background in that I investigated, I followed what I call the golden thread, which is, you know, I'm going to Iceland. I've never been to Iceland. I want to meet interesting people. Well, I asked someone who, who may know someone who may know someone in Iceland and people open their doors to you. And this is the, one of the tricks of journalists is you, you climb that ladder follow that golden thread. And I also investigated happiness, the science of happiness. I went to Rotterdam, which is home to the world database of happiness. I had never seen the words data and happy in the same, you know, so in such close proximity, because data is something that causes problems in my life. It's not a source of happiness. But essentially, yeah, in Rotterdam, what that was is essentially a physical embodiment of the science of happiness, which has been going on for decades now really accelerated in the last decade or so with the work of Marty Seligman in particular, the father of positive psychology, psychologist Mm -hmm. at the University of Pennsylvania. And so there's all kinds of research into happiness, but a lot of it was into the, the who and the what of happiness. But there was a subset of the where of happiness that I stumbled on, and I dove deep into that. And so I looked for some data over the decades of which countries are consistently the happiest and why that might be. And that, that was the starting point for my investigations, but it was not the end point. I didn't just take the top 10. I took a few of them that were, I would say, counterintuitively, unexpectedly happy, but I went other places as well. So I, I in essence, Chris, I treat, treated and still treat the world as a laboratory of ideas, a laboratory of good ideas, not bad ideas. So have you seen, I mean, I've, I've actually read a fair amount about the whole happiness index and the happy nations versus the not happy nations. So I guess a couple questions for you. One is, have you seen movement? Have you seen unhappy become happy? And or if, if that's not a good question, have you been able to identify the sort of causal, in your own experiences, the causal factors? Yeah, it, it's tricky, the, the movement question. I'll tackle that one first. It takes a lot to move a nation's happiness one way or another. It takes a lot of goodness to move it in the positive direction. And it takes quite a calamity to move it in the negative direction. And this sort of mirrors what social scientists have found about our personal happiness, that things don't matter as much as we think they do. You know, there's a, there's a famous study from the 1970s where they looked at people who, one group of people who won the lottery, right? suddenly wealthy, 
and they tracked their happiness over a five-year period. And they took a look at another group of people who were in accidents and become paralyzed, paraplegics. And they tracked their happiness over five years. And what they found is at the end of five years, not immediately, but after five years, both groups more or less returned to the same happiness level they started with, right? So these, these big things, either good or bad, don't affect our happiness as much as we think they do. That's true on a personal level, and it's true on a societal level also. So you might assume that if there's an economic downturn, that American happiness, for instance, goes down. And that's really not the case. It takes a lot more in either direction. So does that mean that happiness isn't all that it's cracked up to be, or is that, or that the general nature of, of humanity is kind of okay? Well, I mean, it's not just okay in that there's a big range. And what I'm talking about is moving one country on the happiness meter. But where the the range is quite large between the happiest countries in the world, like Denmark and Finland and Switzerland, and the least happy, like Moldova, Tanzania, there's a big range out there. People are not just okay. There, there, There is a range. But in order to get people to move up and down the ladder, when you look at this data, it, it, it's remarkably consistent over many decades. Huh. Yeah. So I have to ask you this, which is not part of our agree- agreement, so I, I apologize. Go ahead. So, you know, a lot of the people in my circle, a lot of, you know, a lot of the things I read would suggest that the world is not very happy right now. And I won't go into the, the particulars. You know, we, we both know what they are. Do you think that's... Is that true? You know, do you think that the nature of, of humanity today, I, and this is sort of a rhetorical question, is fundamentally less happy than it was in the golden 1950s? Or, or is it sort of all, you know, devi- you know some deviations from a norm, but the not, not, not significant deviations? I don't know. Well, let's take a look. We're living in unusual times, as you know. So let's take a look at it, say, pre-pandemic. I would say... And there's data to back this up that Americans are basically as happy as they were in the 1950s, the so-called golden age. As a nation, we are four times wealthier, but the happiness meter has, has really not moved. And I, I don't necessarily subscribe to the world as an unhappy place theory. If you've read the work of like Steven Pinker, who's written and about our basically you know, in essence, saying that humanity's never been less violent, more loving, you know, et cetera, than, you know, if off, you take, yeah. yeah, if you take the look at the long view, you know, sort of musing on your happiness and buying self-help books and watching Oprah, this is a, it's a relatively recent phenomenon, right? And, and they're also pretty much Western phenomena. You know, I go to Thailand where there really is no self-help industry, but they're pretty darn happy. So, you know, People 100 years ago, 200 years ago, they def- defined happiness differently. They thought of happiness differently. And they, they, didn't, they didn't obsess about it the way we do. So it's it sort of there was no happiness industry a century ago. And, you know, ironically, the people who are most happy are those who don't obsess about it, don't read books about it, although you should read my book, I must say. But it's sort of like, you know, John Stuart Mill, the English philosopher, said that happiness should be approached sideways like a crab. You know, it's a byproduct of a life lived well. It's not something you should try to acquire directly. And as soon as you do, he said, as soon as you acknowledge you're happy, 
that you cease to be happy. Did you ever read that that book by, uh, I think it was co-authored by the Dalai Lama called The Art of Happiness? I did not. There are lots of happiness books out there. I confess, I did, I did not read. I did not read that one. The the thing that stuck with me. I mean, it's not really about happiness, but it correlates. I mean, it it is in the sense that happiness is derivative of doing other things. And one of the things he he wrote was about worry. And he said the two kinds of worry in the world. There's the worry you should do something about, in which case you should just do it. And then there's worry you can't do anything about, in which case you shouldn't worry about it. And I just it just sort of stuck with me as you know. But I, I think the bigger point in there is happiness being a byproduct or derivative of other decisions and choices and actions you make versus it being, you know, the thing that you're sort of trying to force or, or, or march towards. I want to, I guess, digress and maybe even regress chronologically to when you wrote Man Seeks God. Yes. What was that all about? I mean, I know what it's about, <laughs> but I, I want to know what it's all about from your, from your, from your mouth to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an interesting way of asking the question. I will say, in retrospect, writing about God is tricky, that you've got two camps of people. You've got the true believers, and you've got people who are you know, sort of the new atheists who are adamantly against organized or even disorganized religion. You know, I had a, a health scare a number of years ago, and, and long story short, I was in the ER, and, and my seat. T scans were coming back funky, according to the doctor, and I was nervous as heck, heck. And a nurse came in, and she sensed, smelled my fear, and she said to me, have you found your God yet? And I thought, oh, no, she knows something. I don't know. She's right. seen my scan. And I got better. It was not anything terrible, I'm glad to say, but I, that question kept coming back to me. So so I went around the world again, a habit of mine, and I essentially tried on a number of different religions, from Christianity to Sufism to even Wicca, witchcraft. And I approached it with an open mind and being somewhere in between a true believer and a non-believer. And, you know, the majority of Americans are a growing growing minority at this point, I should say, are called nuns, as in none of the above, especially young, younger people who, when asked, what is your religious affiliation, say none, N-O-N-E. <laughs> and it's not that they're atheists or even agnostics, they just have no affiliation. So we're able to shop for God more than we have been in the past. People convert in all kinds of different directions. So, so that's what that was about, yes. How did you if I may ask, how did you try, I love that expression, trying them on. How did you, how did that actually manifest itself? Like, what did you? Oh, I, I dove in. I went to Kathmandu and I meditated with Tibetan Buddhists. I went to Istanbul and I, and I twirled with the, the dervishes, the Sufi dervishes. I spent quite some time in a Franciscan monastery or it was fully a monastery, but a Franciscan center in the Bronx where they help people. I hung out with witches and in Seattle. I went, I went full in. And, you know, that's one of the advantages of removing the label of journalist from your, around your neck is you can get involved, get personal. I can go to places and say, I like this place, or I don't like this place. I can meet people and say, I like Chris, I don't like Chris. And I find this incredibly liberating, actually. Uh, yeah, completely freeing. So at the end of that, was it a year? You know, the books are... <laughs> I won't say exactly how long. My wife would say it's too long, but it was more than a year, a year or two of, of exploring these, these religions. 
And what did you, I mean, I, I know it's in the book, but what did you, what did you arrive yeah, I don't, at? I don't want to, don't want to give it away. Don't give but it away. I, will, I will say that I was born Jewish. I was what I call a gastronomical Jew for most of my life. It was all about <laughs> the bagels and locks, you know, and not much else. And to be honest, I ran away from Judaism. I found it to be too rules-based, too strict, not all head, no heart. Huh. But traveling to Tzfat in northern Israel, the center of Kabbalah, the mystical arm of Judaism, I discovered this whole missing heart of Judaism. And you know, without giving too much away, I do circle back, surprisingly, uh, to the faith I was born into. That's a wonderful story, right, right in and of itself. Back to the nuns. You mentioned the, the younger people in America being none. N-O-N-E. Yeah, yeah, none none yeah. of the above. Right. It's funny because I, I wrote a, I'm writing about this a little bit in the book I'm working on. What's your sort of prediction of where the role of, if not religion, spirituality, you know, in the decades and even maybe if we make it centuries ahead, like, do you have a, a guess on how, how that unfolds? Does it grow? Does it decline? Like, I, I don't think religion and spirituality are going anywhere. Not at all. And I guess we'll get to my new book, The Socrates Express, but that's essentially what that is about, is this hunger for wisdom. And we, in this current age, have largely used technology and science, social science in particular, as our means to wisdom. But it's only one means, really. And for much longer than our iPhones have been around, or pop psychology has been around, religion slash spirituality, I really put them in the same category, have been around. And I think you're going to see it persist, if not grow in importance in the coming decades and centuries. So my, uh, this is like a wacky, I don't know if it's a hope, a belief, a desperate desire. Is, is <laughs> Let's uh, go with hope. I like hope. <laughs> <laughs> is uh, that there will somehow, some way, emerge a second renaissance of sorts where there's a collective sort of, I say, keep saying sort of a collective embrace of the importance of humanism. Yeah. The spiritual under, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, you know, I, what do you think of that? Is that insane? Is that a, no, it, it's not insane. I mean, when, when, unfortunately, when people say Renaissance these days, they tend to focus on the sort of creative flourishing and, you know, and, and certainly, you know, the Renaissance, which I have studied, the Flor Florentine Renaissance, was about art and scientific innovation. But you're right, at its heart, it was this humanism, and they called themselves humanists. And we, we really do need that. And humanism is a good word. And I think we, we need to embrace it. And I don't mean to sound like a Luddite, but we look to technology for an awful lot and for too much, I think. And we imbue it with magical powers that it does not have. And Silicon Valley is busy solving problems that don't exist with a new app. And for all these reasons, I think we do need to get in touch with our humanity. What that means exactly, what form that takes, I don't know, but I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. It, you know, the, this book, the, title, the working title is Technology is Dead. I echo exactly what you just said about, about sort of the problem with technology always leading the way or theoretically providing the answers. But the thing I spent a lot of time on or have spent a lot of time on thus far is the unintended consequences to our humanity. 
you know, that these, these inventions seemingly, you know, create greater levels of convenience, ease, whatever, whatever, but they also carry with them, not all, all of them, but many of them carry with them unintended consequences that, right. that impact. There's them. a, there's a cost to convenience. There's a convenience tax. Right. Right. And I'm of, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, but I'm of the belief that no technology is neutral that it mm. has a bias, but it's not a political bias. It's a bias toward a certain aspect of our humanity. So, you know, we take it for a given that we want, you know, things to be fast and convenient and that any technology like the iPhone or an app that increases speed and convenience is good. But that's a, that's a value judgment. You know, speed and convenience are not necessarily good and they do have these unintended consequences. We pay a price for convenience but we just, we worship it so much that we think if something's convenient and it's fast, it's automatically good. And that's, you know, not necessarily the case. No. And, and it, it's funny. So when I first started writing this piece several months ago, I just, you know, as, as, as you know, you, you just start with, by asking questions or at least how, how I do it. So I, I started asking the question of, you know, what is human progress? And, you know, this, there's a Steven Pinker view and, but I'm like, well, no, what is human progress? And what is what is all innovation since the beginning of mankind or humankind been focused on in terms of fueling progress? And and I had this like holy shit moment of, oh my God, a vast majority of innovation, particularly technological innovation, has purely been focused on speeding things up. Right. And who said that was good? <laughs> Exactly. And this is like what Socrates talked about was we should always question our assumptions. And we go through life with a lot of unexamined assumptions. And one of them is that faster is always better, that convenient is always better than inconvenient, and, and all these, sort, these sorts of things. And you're right. You know what? There's a myth that progress is linear, that we're just on this road towards more progress, and that, of course, we are more advanced oh, than we were 100 years ago. But I don't know. Look at those photos from 1918. Everyone's wearing a mask, and that was all they had to protect themselves. Are we really that much more advanced? Well, we have jet airplanes. Well, what do they do? They spread the virus around the world. We have the internet. Well, what does that do? That spreads misinformation. Another form of virus, right? Yes, around the world. So this automatic assumption that uh, we are on a forward trajectory, you know, in this sort of linear view of history as opposed to you know, Eastern religions and, and philosophies see time as more circular. And so, you know, who knows if we're better off than 100 years ago? Um, they had a, a lot going for them 100, 200 years ago. It also, for me, prompts the question of, you know, what is the measure of a life? You know, this, this is a heavy thing to, to ask, I suppose. But like in your work, I mean, you're doing humanist work. What is the sort of macro intention for you, for your life of that work? And, and if you don't want to answer that and tell me, shut up. No, it's, uh, oh boy. I mean, <laughs> Sorry. It's, it, no, that's a, that's a, that's, they don't get any bigger than that. I think it's a deeply human desire to be useful, right? And I can't, I can't fix things. I can't make things. I can't design things. I just, I don't have that skill set. What I have is an ability to use words and I think a way of looking at the world a bit differently from others. And, you know, you want to be useful. It, it, and by writing these books and I hear from readers and they find it, you know, it's not the sort of praise where, oh, you're a great writer. You're so smart. It's more when people write to me and say, your, your book changed my life. 
or I see things a bit differently now. That is immensely satisfying. I think all writers are secret therapists in a way, you know? Yeah, yeah, I love that. Uh, Even the ones who don't write about psychotherapy at all. So, and it's a weird, writing is a weird, you know, I think I always say that the only true self-help book is the one you write yourself. And I think that's partly true that I am trying to help myself by writing the books. And my wife says I'm, you know, much wiser in the page than I am in person that, you know, whenever I have a neurotic (laughs) moment, which is about 27 times a day, she's like, you know, just pick up one of your books and it's all there. Just read it, you know. So yeah, it's a weird combination of selfishness and selflessness, this, this writing business, I would say. All of that completely echoes with me. I used to have a little a little line underneath my e- email, you know, sign up, Chris Colbert, you know, my phone number, whatever. And it was just, it just said, here to help. Like, yeah, like you're the IT department or something. Yeah, the, I mean. I, the I IT department of the heart. There you go. Yeah, I, I don't, you know. And I think the other one for me, which is very, I think, sort of related to my upbringing and the lack of call it emotional intimacy that I experienced. I mean, it was a fine upbringing, but not, not particularly dimensional. That's the other thing for my, you know, the measure of my life is my capacity to learn intimacy and to help others achieve it as well. So my, my sort of form of helping is maybe a little more focused around that, but let's, let's, let's shift gears and talk about your about to be released book, the Socrates Express genesis of that idea. I love the idea. So just give, give the audience, if you would, a quick, the subtitle or, you know, well, the subtitle is in search of life lessons from dead philosophers. And, you know, I've always been philosophy curious or wisdom curious. I would say I've dabbled over the years in philosophy. I was intrigued by it. And I decided to dive head first and to, to it's going to sound grand, but in, to dive into philosophy and try to resurrect it, right? Because we were talking earlier about this need for wisdom and how people look for it in technology or they look for it in religion. And for a lot of us, neither option is particularly appealing. Well, it turns out there is this incredible reservoir of wisdom called philosophy. Now, the word philosophy comes from the Greek philosophia, which means literally lover of wisdom, right? doesn't say anything about having academic tenure or being the smartest person in the room or, you know, being a logic chopper, as they're called. It's about someone who loves wisdom. It doesn't even say anything I should add about acquiring wisdom, right? Any more than the Declaration of Independence says anything about acquiring happiness. It's the pursuit that you're entitled to. And so I spent several years traveling the world, again, old habits die hard, traveling to places where some 14 philosophers either did their thinking or did their dying or where their philosophy is particularly relevant today. And I traveled by train because I can think on a train. I cannot think on a bus or an airplane. I find train travel just very conducive to contemplation. And I arranged the book in a series of how-to questions. Each chapter is a how-to question, how to get out of bed like Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor and Stoic, or how to wonder like Socrates, or how to enjoy like Epicurus, how to fight like Gandhi, how to die like like Montaigne. So it sort of takes you through the course of a, a life from the how-to questions that are pertinent, particularly when you're younger, to those in middle age, to those when you're older. And it is, I try to combine two words that you rarely see together, which is practical and philosophy. Because I do think there is a thread of practicality running through philosophy. And that's the thread I've tried to piece together. I love that. 
can you give us a, a specific area you went to, the specific philosopher, a specific how-to, sort of how it all came together? Can you a little anecdote? Or But I'm also curious how you got to the how-tos. Yeah, well, that was tricky. Just a quick example is Ep- Epicurus, one of the most misunderstood of philosophers. They're all misunderstood like teenagers, but particularly Epicurus. When you hear the word Epicurus, you might people confuse it now with the website Epicurious, or they think of an Epicurean as a gourmand who indulges in gourmet food and lavish living. And in fact, he was the exact opposite. You know, he, he promoted simple living and simple tastes and simple cuisine, food really, not even cuisine. And I went to two places. I went to Athens to find the Kepos or garden, which is where he had his commune or the remains of it, I should say, and there's not much left, but he had this walled garden where his followers gathered, and it was sort of a combination of, I would say, academic setting and gymnasium and hippie commune all rolled up into one. Because back then, philosophy was, you were all in. I mean, it was it was university and, and self-help group and book club and everything else thrown into one. And they gathered there and that's where Epicureanism grew. And then I also went to a place that we associate with gourmet living, which is Napa, California, and found a 73-year-old guy named Tom Merle, who is a practicing small E. Epicurean who lives by his philosophy. And there are these people out there, particularly with the Stoics, but also the Epicureans and others who are you know, followers, for lack of a better word, of, of these ancient philosophies. And I, you know, sat down for a simple meal with Tom and we hashed out how this philosophy is practical for him. Amazing. And you did how many, how many how-tos are there? How many chapters? Well, I came up with 14. There was originally going to be 15, a nice even-ish number, sort of. But I killed off one philosopher. It was bloody. I don't want to talk about it. Very messy. I don't, I still think he hasn't forgiven me. Uh, and, And it was, it was, you know, you Google philosophers and you get a list of hundreds, thousands, right? So I had to narrow it down. The first thing I encountered was most of the dead philosophers were dead white guys that you encounter in, in any anthology. And that's unfortunate because philosophy was largely only open to white guys who became dead white guys, but not exclusively. So I include three women in the book, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, Simone Weil, and a little-known 10th-century Japanese author and, I think, philosopher named Sei Shonagon, who wrote a fascinating little book called The Pillow Book. Men have no monopoly on wisdom, and neither does the West. So I include Gandhi, who was very much a philosopher, and Confucius as well. So I was looking for different flavors of wisdom and in philosophers who took different approaches. And I also just chose people I liked, you know, these were, these were not cardboard cutouts, you know, they they may appear that way now. So we think, Oh, Socrates, something you study in college. And he was, you know, no, he was a guy, he was a dude, an ugly dude, the ugliest man in Athens, they said, and he had weird habits and, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau would moon people in the streets of Geneva. And they, they were, they were flawed human beings like you and I, and I chose ones that I found the most relatable. I mean, this is like a, a curiosity. Were they sponsored? Like, how did they, how did they live? Like, well, some had lots of money. Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome, so he was he was doing okay. You know, others like Nietzsche were feral philosophers, not not attached to any university. In fact, he quit his university job, and they were struggling to get by. 
ones like Schopenhauer lived off his father's inheritance. So they were all over the map. You know, they were, a lot of them though, I know they think about it, very few of the ones I write about were really academic philosophers, except, no, very few of them actually. They were all sort of anti-institution. You know, they sort of cut themselves off from, from the academic world and went solo, which you could do back then. Do you see modern day, this is sort of a loaded question, do you see modern day equivalent? I mean, I would say yes and no. You know, there's a quote from Plato that I use actually at the start of my book, The Geography of Genius. What is honored in a country is cultivated there. And so we don't really honor philosophy, so we don't cultivate philosophy and philosophers. There's some excellent contemporary philosophers. Martha Nussbaum comes to mind, but they're not particularly famous or household names not because they're not good philosophers or great philosophers, but because we don't honor what they do. You know, we honor basketball stars or, or YouTube stars or whatever. So that's why I think, you know, we don't have philosophy is not part of the conversation mostly for, for that reason. And, you know, there are lots of celebrities who are kind of closet philosophers. Steve Martin, the comedian, majored in, majored in philosophy as an undergrad, and he he famously said, and I love this, he said, you know, if you major in any other subject, you know, history, English literature, for instance, the moment you graduate, you just you forget it all. It's gone. He said, if you major in philosophy, you retain just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> so there's this notion that not only is philosophy useless, but it's actually dangerous. And you know, that's not true. And Steve Martin has, has done pretty well for himself. So I'm just mindful of the time. So but, but firstly, on the book, when does it, I, I think it's about to be released, right? It's like, out next Tuesday, August 25th. Congratulations. Thank you. And it'll be published in the U.S. and in 13 other countries so far. And I narrate the audio book, which is an awful lot of fun. I love doing that. And look, I, I have to be honest, launching a book in a pandemic is not easy. People are distracted, but I, you know, I think we need, there's, a, there's a, I do sense there are people who are becoming reflective and contemplative about their lives. And I think people are starting to ask questions and the pandemic has led to that. Like, am I leading the life I really want to lead? And if not, why not? And what can I do about that? And so I think, you know, we, we need books like this. You know, we need thoughtful books. We, we need to think about the big picture and not just how to get through the day. It's funny, that was gonna be my last question. So you, you answered it in advance of me asking it, but I, but I, will, I will sort of, I guess, twisted a, a little bit, which is back to your, your, your personal measure of your life, which is to help people. I mean, you've been helping people for a number of years, primarily through your words, spoken or written. What is the area of help that you have, the need, the plea for help that you have heard the most? Where do you think, at least the audience that you, that you have you know, attracted to you, where, where are people struggling the most? Which is, which is a way of saying, where can, we, you know, where can we help people the most? One of the conclusions I've reached, particularly when it comes to happiness, is that expectations are, are the enemy of happiness. And I, I increasingly think that's true. People carry burdens on their shoulders. They feel they're not okay, right? And they find it reassuring. I've, I've written openly about my struggles with anxiety and with depression. And I've had people come up to me in book readings back when we had book readings and, and say to me that, that that was helpful to see that put on the page to, because they suffered from anxiety, depression, or other problems as well. 
People want to know that it's okay to not be okay. And we live in an airbrushed world where we're all supposed to be perfect all the time. And the successful person is one without doubts, uh, without depression, without any of these things. And, you know, I try to be honest on the page and to not be an expert, but to be a friend and to let people know that it's okay to not be okay. I think we've, we've largely, we've lost that, you know, people are tense and they're gripping onto this image of the perfect life and the perfect self. And, and social media, I think, is partly to blame for that. You know, everyone's life looks better on Instagram and on Facebook. And, you know, I've got a friend who appears to have the perfect life on Facebook and we get together for dinner and she's got problems and this or that. And I'm thinking, hmm. <laughs> and I find it reassuring to know that her life is not as presented on Facebook, but has its, its wart, its problems, its, its grit. You know, life is, we need the grit of life. Yeah. A long-winded answer to it. No, so. that wasn't long-winded. I feel like I, I, I'd love to talk to you for the rest of my life. <laughs> that would be the world's largest, longest podcast. Let's do that. Let's do a continuous podcast, sort of like the Truman Show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a podcast, but we don't know. We don't know we're in a podcast. We're just talking constantly, but the whole world's listening. That would be cool. Did you ever see a movie, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? No. Do they shoot horses? It's not, it has nothing to do with horses. But okay. it's, it's about a marathon dance, and it just goes on and on and on. I think Jane Fonda's in it. But I just wanted to comment on, you used the word obsession earlier, and I wanted to ask you when you used it, if you thought prior generations suffer the same level of obsession that modern society does. Like it, it feels like people are more obsessed, including obsessed about expectations. And I'm wondering, you know, in, in 1890 or 90, whatever, was, was obsession like a, a function? <laughs> really? I well, I mean, we, we, we live with the tyranny of choice and tyranny of options, right? right and back right. then, you didn't have as many options, right? You weren't, and there, another way of saying that is you didn't have as many expectations. Um, people tended to grow where they were planted. And now we have options. We have career options. We can uh, marriage options, travel options. And we're always afraid that we're choosing the wrong option. I see this particularly with young people, generation just entering college now. You know, I feel like telling them, take it, take a year off, travel when, when you can travel, you know, goof off in your 20s. But they're, they're, they're so afraid of being left behind and they're not willing to do that. And, you know, I think people, you know, it's, it's easy to both glorify the past and also to dismiss the past both. It's easy to glorify it and say, you know, okay, I, I had this conversation the other day with people, you know, when would you like to be a traveler? I'd love to have been a traveler in the 1920s and 30s and, and gone around the world when you could, you could get places, but there were still unexplored places. But of course, if I was African-American or a woman, those options would not be open to me. So I was glorifying the past. It's easy also to dismiss it and to assume that we are better off today, better than we ever have been. And I'm not so sure about that. Look, you were a history guy, right? Why don't people pay more attention to history? Why, why do we think that, that we have nothing to learn? I mean, wisdom is, is portable. It, it transcends space and time. And, you know, Socrates and, and Simone de Beauvoir and everyone in between, they were people like us. They asked these same questions. They didn't do it on podcasts. The podcast of ancient Athens podcast scene was very limited, Chris, very limited. But they got together at the Agora, the marketplace, and they did what we're doing now. They talked about big ideas and they took their time for the most part. You know, I just, uh, it, it triggers for me, a, there's a, a quote by a, I'm 
doctrine of George Hegel, I think he was a Austrian, maybe philosopher, 19th century, who once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. Yeah. And we, because, you know, it ties together with this myth of progress. If we're progressing, then why would we want to know what they were thinking a few hundred years ago? We're, we, and we confuse technological advancement with moral advancement. Is the world more moral and kinder than it was a few hundred years ago? In some ways, yes. We've largely abolished slavery. In other ways, no. Right. Yeah, and, and for me, that's just triggered. And this, this is really why I started the, the book with this questioning of what is progress? Like, do, and do we agree as a, as a collection of homo sapiens on what constitutes our collective progress? And I don't know, the more I scratched at that, uh, the more I came to, and I read Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. So the more I just, I come to believe, I don't think we have an understanding of, of the destination we're trying to get to. Right. On a, on a societal level, what is progress? On, and on a personal level, when I write about this in the Socrates Express, what, what does success look like? You know, and that's something I wrestle with all the time. I have friends who are in the finance world. For them, success is is one metric, how much money you earn. You know, when you're a writer, it's a little trickier. You know, what what, what marks success? Is it the Amazon ranking of your book? Is it uh, how you're thought of? Is it simply the satisfaction that you get from the work? And that's one of the lessons that I write about and struggle to listen to my own advice, which is separating effort from result, right? Our very results-oriented society, it's all about results. But the Bhagavad Gita, this hin, hin, the ancient Hindu poem, there's a, a line there where Lord Krishna says to Arjun, essentially put 100% effort into what you're doing and have 0% invested in the result. And I keep coming back to that when I have a bad day. I just, just, I don't control the results. We don't control the results. We control the effort. That's it. Right. That's a wonderful way to conclude what was a, hopefully the first of many conversations. And I say that from the bottom of my heart. I, I just, there's so many things you said on, in our one hour that resonate with me, that, that remind me, that clarify for me. And so I just, I thank you for the effort that you gave me over the last 60 minutes and you gave the listeners. And, and I congratulate you for the new book, the old books. I hope the world reads them and I hope, you know, we together in our little ways are helping guide, guide the trajectory in a more effective, positive way for more people. Helping people is your thing. I think it's sort of my thing. It's wonderful to get to know you. Wonderful. Likewise. I really, I really enjoyed this and we need, uh, we need uh, more humanity like this out there. Just a little bit. And I, I'm sure you get this too. There's a, there's a beginning of a movement. I, I mean, the, the response to this little podcast that I started last week is kind of crazy. And I think it's because it's what you said about COVID that there's, there's a, I think a growing, it's, it's sparked an awareness of like people are beginning to see, see life differently. Maybe they are, we don't, you know, nobody really wants to return to normal. They want to return to a better normal you know, it, it, I, there's nothing wrong with suggesting that something good might come out of this. Plenty of bad. We know the bad, but the bad's um, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, historically the, these pandemics have been followed by great flourishing. The Renaissance in Florence happened only some 50 years after the black death. And I wouldn't wish that wish this on anyone, but right. if it makes us pause and think and perhaps steer ourselves in a slightly different direction then then good. Let's do that. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks for listening today. 
If you're in search of more opportunities to realize positive change in your life or work, and you find what I have to say helpful, you can always subscribe to my show, check out one of my new salons or weekly virtual gatherings of like-minded folks. You can read some of my writings or just listen to one of the talks that I've given around the world over the last couple of years. And you can do it all at chriscolbert.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for my ongoing email updates. When you do, you'll receive a free copy of the first chapter of my about-to-be-published book, Technology is Dead. Again, it's all available at chriscolbert.com. Thanks again for listening today, and I look forward to connecting more in the days ahead.